welcome to Season 4 of the Glow Journal Podcast, a conversation with the beautiful minds behind the world's biggest beauty brands. I'm your host, beauty writer Gemma Watts, and in this episode, I'm joined by the founder and CEO of Sunday Riley, Sunday Riley. Sunday Riley is honest about failure, so much so that she credits several missteps with the success of her namesake brand. Sunday Riley was launched in 2009 in the middle of the global financial crisis, with Sunday herself explaining to me that often the perfect timing doesn't come wrapped up neatly with a bow. The right time may well be disguised as chaos. She allowed herself to be led by intuition, which proved to be the right call, with Barney's opting to pick up the brand before its launch, despite a recession. The brand's price point began somewhere significantly higher than where it sits now. Sunday pushed to have it lowered, and while many told her that she was making a huge mistake, she explains to me that she would rather go down doing what she feels is right. A few years later, the brand was picked up by Sephora, where it failed miserably in Sunday's words. So much so that the retailer forgot the brand existed and left it off the store map. A failure of such epic proportions was precisely the motivation that Sunday needed. She made a promise to Sephora that Sunday Riley would become the number one skincare brand in the number one store within the season. At the time, they were sitting at number 55. Within a few months, Sunday Riley did become the store's highest selling skincare brand. And despite absolutely no marketing budget... Several of the brand's products hit global cult status, which is where they remain today, 12 years later. In this conversation, Sunday shares the importance of removing ego in business and acknowledging where you've gone wrong, how intuition led to her pulling multiple bestsellers from the shelves and in several cases reformulating them, and how she built her business from the corner of a working car garage. I have read that you had a really early interest in skincare. That's an interest you had since you were a child. So let's start right there. What is your very earliest memory of beauty? You know, it's it's really funny. I It's hard to pinpoint what the earliest one was. It's more of like a series of little flashes. Like I remember... Um, I remember my grandmother cutting aloe in her backyard for things like, whether it was like abrasions or, um, things or just saying like how good it was for your skin. I remember my mother applying, um, blue eyeshadow and thinking she was the most beautiful person in the world. Uh, I remember watching old films. I, I, that was something my mom and I always had from the time I was really little. We'd watch, uh, very old movies together and, Maybe it was the the Vaseline actually on the lens, but everyone had this <laughs> this beautiful <laughs> glowy you know presence about them, and I was just infatuated with this idea of of beauty and self care. What did you think you might be when you grew up? Oh, I I had no idea. A wizard, maybe. <laughs> I had no idea. I think I've had that answer before, so you're not alone. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> Hopefully, it was someone great. <laughs> But yeah, I I didn't know. I was open to kind of anything. I had had a ton of ideas. I thought an inventor, things like that. I didn't know what to invent, but I, you know, I tried to invent pulley systems in my, in my bedroom to get my dolls to fly and 
tried to do things like that. But yeah, so that was, I always wanted to create something. And that you've done. So you launched your brand Sunday Riley in 2009 you've invented and you have created so it happened (laughs) there you go I mean there's no flying yet but (laughs) not yet never say never yet not yet we've had a weird 18 months so yeah I mean that pulley system was pretty awesome so I mean I'm just ready to pull that one back out (laughs) at what point did the idea to create a brand come to you and what was the gap in the market that you were looking to fill yeah you know it's like I think when I look at my life, when I look back at it, it's, I I tend to try to just follow the opportunities that come, right? Like I'll have a vision for something, but I also follow the opportunities that come. And it's just, there was an opportunity to, to start a brand. I, you know, I didn't have this idea that I named after myself. That wasn't the, that wasn't the general idea. Um, That really came about um, because of Barney's. It was a suggestion of the, the main buyer there. Her name was Bettina. And I thought she was crazy. I was like, why would I name a brand after myself? literally no one knows, knows who I am except my mother or like, you know, like maybe my neighbor. And she said, well, not, not yet, not yet. And I thought that was, that was interesting, but there was, you know, it was, it was the recession. There was a, a big recession that time period too. Um, and I think a lot of people weren't doing something new because it seemed like a weird time to be, you know, it's a time to be cautious. And, um, you know, I, I like a good risk. And so for me, for me, it seemed like a wonderful opportunity to, to try something new. So I did it. I love that. It's one thing to have this idea though, but I feel like it's another thing entirely to physically create a product and build a brand. So where did you start? I know that you formulate yourself, but how did you go about finding say the right ingredient manufacturers sourcing packaging all of these little bits and pieces that go into physically bringing a brand to market sure and you know that that's a great question and I think in general when I do anything I can be a little bit obsessive that's definitely part of my character profile (laughs) I've got some obsessive behavioral traits um so when I when I when something takes a hold of my mind it's like I live and breathe it and I want to know everything about it. And I don't want you to pull me away from it ever because that is what I am like literally surviving off of at that moment. And so once I fully committed to this idea or like really any idea, I just kind of like live and breathe it until, until literally it comes to life. Um, so like when it comes to packaging, I didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't know people introduced me to people, but I mean, nothing went, yeah, I did my own research and I found different companies and, um, you know, I just called them and see if they'd work with us. And, you know, it was interesting because we could, I couldn't afford a graphic designer. So I had to, um, buy Photoshop and learn how to design myself. And, you know, I had ideas, like I could draw things, but I didn't know how to actually like do it, if that makes any sense. Hmm. So it wasn't just at that time, it wasn't just about sourcing ingredients and finding packaging. It was literally like, what should the design look like? What should the colors be? How do I learn a program to do it? Um, at that time, this is really kind of like pre- you know, pre Shopify, pre things like that. So I also taught myself how to code so I can code a website. Um, and yeah, and listen, it was, it was not the best website you've ever seen. (laughs) It wasn't like, it wasn't, it wasn't amazing. I mean, those companies existed, but now it's more like out of the box at that time you had to have a lot of knowledge, but I just kind of like had this vision and you just, you know, you couldn't stop me. You've, brought up an interesting point that I hadn't even considered you launched in 2009 so yeah that's just sort of coming out of or almost kind of in the midst 
of the global financial crisis. So did that make things difficult trying to find people to work with when a lot of them were probably out of business? Um, I would say that, <laughs> great question. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't say it would make things easier. Yeah. Um, the only, yeah, the only advantage was that um, a lot of brands weren't innovating or putting money into new product development, mm-hmm. and a lot of brands weren't um, uh, weren't weren't launching their waiting a year or two. So sometimes, you know, taking advantage of a slow moment, it is a bigger risk, and your your risk is a lot bigger. But that can sometimes be the perfect moment for you. You know, it's not, I always say like, you know, the perfect moment is never this, you know, like tied in a bow, you know, sometimes yeah. perfect looks imperfect. Sometimes like your opportunity comes housed as chaos, but really it's kind of like the universe has put your opportunity in there. You just have to have faith in it. I love that opportunity can come housed as chaos. But then, I mean, if we look at the last 18 months, people just want new. So it would have been the same then, yeah. right? If no one else was developing or creating something new and you've jumped in there bang yeah I I think there is something there is something about you know the human spirit (laughs) needing to needing to be inspired and when things are down you know people want to people want to be lifted back up in a way um for sure for sure I think we've definitely seen that in the last 18 months it's been it's been a weird 18 months I'm not gonna lie to you (laughs) weird is putting it really (laughs) it's been a little weird I mean, I know I've wanted new things. So what were the first products that you launched with? Would I be right in saying that Good Jeans was in the mix or at least an early kind of prototype? Yeah, yeah, you'd be absolutely right. And I was actually, I was literally thinking about this the other day. I was like, what were the names of the products? Because literally none exist anymore except for Good Jeans. But there was a face cream called Bionic and a serum called Skin Adrenaline and um, just a, like a few things here and there. And then about a few months later, um, Juno and ceramic slip launched. So those were a little bit later, but the eye cream was start over like there was, and you know, when we launched the, the pricing was really set by Barney's department store. Um, uh-huh. they really suggest the pricing and that was a super luxury and it is, um, you know, department store, very high end. And, um, at that time, you know, moisturizers were incredibly expensive and I'm sure they still are in certain areas. Um, but you know, I, I want to say, you know, what was our, it was like $225 or something is what it was priced at. It was, it was super high and it was like, you had to be priced at this. Well, you know, and I was like, I don't agree because I don't think that many people are going to be able to buy it. Like this feels really strange to me, but they're like, no, this is how to do it. And you know, the brand really, really, really struggled. And I just, I didn't feel right about it. And we could, it was just, I, I felt the pricing was wrong. It just, everything, it just felt wrong. And I was like, you know, I'm just going to go with my intuition. I'm like, otherwise we're going to die on the vine here. And I just feel like this is not the right thing. This is not the right pricing and dramatically slashed, you know, the pricing for, for everything. So now our moisturizers are $65 by comparison. Um, and we sell a lot more. Understandably so. Yeah. Yeah. But just really changing that. I remember telling several retailers at that time that I was like, I just don't feel this is the right thing. And it was just, the feedback was like no brand in the history of skincare has ever slashed their prices like this. And I was like, well, we launched with the wrong prices and I don't believe in this. And, you know, that's why I feel I have to do this. And if I don't, I feel like it's the end. So if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But, you know, like I'm going to, you know, like I'd rather go down doing what I think is right than go down what I think, is, you know, go down, you know, go down doing the wrong thing. Gut instinct. There is a lot to be said yeah. about trusting intuition. I'm, I'm, I'm obsessed with intuition. I'm not going to lie to you. <laughs> Good. I love that. 
I am. I actually just started this um, this course that I really like, and um, but it's on basically it's on grounding, and I, I meditate all the time. I love meditation, but this one's more like on grounding, um, grounding into the earth, and like really connecting to your intuition. And I I don't know. I really it. I'm I'm so sometimes so in the air with my thoughts that actually having this more you know grounding moment really does help you connect to that inner voice that tells you what you should and shouldn't do. And when I don't connect to that, if I connect to fear or doubt hundred percent of the time I go the wrong direction. I might need to get some details of that. Okay. <laughs> this is a trap that we all fall into, I think, particularly running a business. Very yeah, difficult yeah. to find like the grounding moments. It it is. And you know it's it it is difficult. And I feel like, you know, just really I just kind of visualize myself as just like sitting on the ground and almost like tree, you know, like a tree root mm. with the width of my hip like going into the earth and just holding me down and really just putting myself inside of my body. And just cutting like a cord, cutting all the cords above me with all the thoughts and the fears and the doubts. So I'm just really like still instead of just kind of like in the chaotic air. Um, I love that. And that, that kind of helps me a little bit because otherwise I'm, I'm literally in the chaotic air. <laughs> That's where I live. Yeah, this, this sounds all too familiar to me. So that, that launch period, how big was your team at that point? I understand that you went from, if research serves me, you went from your yeah. parents' house to a vintage car garage to yes. a converted school. Where were you at this point? Um, when it launched, it was at my parents' house. Yeah. And it was just, it was just three of us. And one of them was, was a, a guy, Jaime, who was, who packed the boxes with, with me in the afternoons. He was just there part-time between working at the movie theater. So it was, like, it wasn't. And then, you know, by the time it got to be four people or, you know, if I was, it was, it took a while. We were in the car garage for quite a while as well. The thing about the car garage that was unfortunate was it was a working garage with a mechanic. Um, getting these cars up and running and repairing them. And the thing about vintage cars from like the 50s and 60s is that the exhaust and the fumes are really intense. It's not like, this is not a contemporary car with like a clean running system. So I mean, I just remember being freezing because there was no heating and having to open the garage door, let the fumes out as you're trying to like come up with ideas for how to get a, a brand up and running. And you're up against, you know, companies that made, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars a year. And you're like breathing in carbon monoxide trying not to die but honestly it was exciting it was exciting that did not even occur to me when I read vintage car garage I was like oh so it was an old garage and then they took it over nope nope still operating no we were just in a corner oh my we're just in a corner yeah yeah so it was you know it was it was beautiful and some of the cars were gorgeous but it was like I said it was working and um, it was, it was, it was funny, but when we finally got into the, the old school, the converted schoolhouse, um, in the smallest room you've ever seen, it, it still felt with like, and it, by the way, every light had a different color temperature. So like some oh. were blue lights, some were why, and by the way, I want to tell you why I didn't change the light bulbs again. I don't know, but I just remember that I can't explain to you, but I just remember like, depending on where you sat, it was a different color in the room. Really? You know, was it going to be yellow or blue light? You had enough on your plate. Changing I know. Light I didn't bulbs even, did not yeah. need to be part of the mix. <laughs> it didn't even occur to me. Now I would change the light bulbs. Then I didn't think about it. <laughs> Hindsight is twenty twenty. You mentioned Barney's. Now, yes. before you'd even launched, Barney's expressed interest in the brand, which is huge. I would love <laughs> to hear more about this because I would imagine that an order from such a major retailer would add another layer of I guess, pressure and certainly different logistics to the launch, despite it being so exciting 
So how did you physically deal with that? Because, that, I mean, it's stressful even hearing about it. Sure. Well, actually, I'm going to say the same thing, but from a different perspective. Um, this is what was stressful. Had, a, had the concept for a brand, um, but no, no retail partner. None. So nowhere to sell it except for this website that I had kind of figured out how to kind of get up and running, which wasn't even live at that time. So there was literally, we had, we had a contract with um, Henry Bendel's for one location. And then that kind of got pulled out before we even literally, before we even hired a person, basically, and it just, it just didn't happen. And they didn't have space for us. And then it was kind of like, okay, we've got, we've got product, we've got this net, but we didn't have a single retailer. So I, you know, I, I had hired a woman, her name was Nancy. She worked in PR just to see if she could like introduce me to someone. And I said to her, you know, Nancy, um, you know, I was with, we had this one retailer, one store and they canceled. Otherwise we have not a single contract with anyone, not even like a small boutique store, nothing. And, and she said, okay. And, and Barney's, you know, kind of like been blowing us off a little bit. I mean, understandably, right? Like <laughs> I, I get it. It's a recession. I, you know, nobody. And I'm like, really, you want to talk to me? Um, so she said, walk in with the attitude that we're not walking out without a purchase order. And I said, okay. So I had met with them several times. They had never, you know, they had never said like, yes, let's do business. So I remember they, they, this woman, she looked at me and she said, okay, you know what? I'll give you a chance. I'll give you three stores and out of their total fleet. So we, three was a fraction. Uh, and they, she chose Madison Avenue, New York, Beverly Hills in LA. And then we did um, Chicago. So mm-hmm. it was three locations plus Barneys.com. And it was really right. We launched in September, right at the holidays, right when holidays were starting. Um, in those locations, we, we were really behind the gift wrap. And like, you couldn't really see the brand because it was kind of behind a Christmas tree. Um, so it Perfect. wasn't like, yeah, yeah, it was ideal. And, you know, it was like, and if you aren't successful within six months, six to nine months, like max, we're going to pull the brand. So really Barney's like, it wasn't that it added pressure. It was that it was our only chance. They're the only ones that said yes. Everyone else said no. So it was, it was, it was, I, I looked at less as pressure and more as an opportunity of like, like literally it was our only lane to drive down. Um, the pressure came in when it was like, and if you're not a success, we're going to pull you out. And we were behind the gift wrap. That was, that was a little bit odd, you know, a little challenging and you couldn't leave your counter to go and grab a client, you know, across the, across the floor. Um, so I just basically, you know, we, I hired some, some people in each store and just told them break the rules, go over and grab everyone you know, like do what you have to do, because if we do it, if we do it the right way and we just sit behind the counter, again, the, the brand will die. But if you see someone walk up to them and say, hi, I would love to show you this eye cream, you know, just, you know, what's the worst that happens? You know, yeah. <laughs> we only have six months. That's it. So, um, so yeah, it started slowly started to take off. There's probably going to be a bit of overlap here, but were there any challenges or any lessons that you took from that period when the brand really was in its infancy that you find you're still applying to your work today? Absolutely. Um, just keep moving forward, you know, and, that, and I didn't say, well, Disney said that, but like, but it, it, it's, it's truly what I think about all the time. You know, you hit adversity and it seems like, you know, I remember at that time every day, every single day, it felt like the business was going to shut down. And I don't just mean like for a month, I mean, for years, it was like, how will we make payroll? How will we, how will we do anything? Like, how will we get past all these different things? 
but you just, you know, you keep moving forward and you pivot. And I try not to let myself get too emotionally, um, you know, I'm like, I, I don't have time to, to break down. Like, you know, I've got, I've got to solve it. I've got to like, it's like having this gigantic puzzle in front of you with moving pieces and you've got to constantly move the pieces. You don't have a chance to like, to, you know, to break down. You want to break down, <laughs> but if you do break down, then who's going to move the pieces? <laughs> who's going to try and make the puzzle fit? So that was, it's just, you keep moving forward. You got to, you got to keep moving forward. You can't stop. I read that Sephora, something like 20 Sephora stores picked up the line pretty soon after that launch as well, which was more than double your Barney's distribution. I would love to hear more about that time. Sure. It was a little bit after that. It was, it was about a few years, I want to say. And that's still very early. Yes, 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 yes. yes. I'm just trying to think of like what the exact timeline was. So it was 19 stores. Um, we got into Sephora and I, I want to be honest with you, we failed absolutely ethically miserable. Uh-huh. I mean, it was like, if I thought Barney's was a struggle, I mean, we couldn't have failed more, more magnificently than we failed at Sephora. We were such a failure at Sephora when we first entered there that um, the mapping team, the, the, the team that is responsible for, for saying where each brand goes in each store and mm-hmm. maps it out, forgot that we existed. No. And swear to God, and did not put us on the map at all for the 19 stores. They caught it um, at, at literally when we were down to, they were down to one store, but they'd already submitted all the plans. And I remember because our, our merchant team called and they they were super apologetic, but, you know. It, they would want to be. Oh, my God. But, but to be fair for them, we were only making a dollar for them. So it's like, just to be fair. Regardless. You know, it was, it was honestly, they, they felt sorry, but it was more of a courtesy because I really can't believe they didn't drop us and because we were that unsuccessful. And so I flew to San Francisco and I sat down um, with, you know, this wonderful woman named Priya. And I said to her, you know, listen, because we were in one store at this point. And she, she kind of said to me, she said, you know, I, I believe in you, but I, I just don't know if this is happening. And I just want you to prepare for that. And, you know, you know, she kind of was being very nice, but she wasn't going to pull me out of the door. So that was nice. I had that one store. So I appreciate that. But um, I said to her, look, what if we made a deal? And she was like, sure. And I said, what if we became the number one skincare brand in that store? Um, and she was like, well, that's impossible. And I said, why? And she said, because it's the number one skincare store in America for Sephora. And you will not become number one at the number one store for skincare because you're literally number 55. And, and she was like, it's, it's impossible. And I said, well, what if we did it within the next season? And I said, and if you did, would you give me 50 stores? And she said, do it. And we'll talk about what, what, what you'll get. And we did within that, within, you know, six months or so, we became the number one store. Um, and then number one brand skincare brand and the number one store in America. And it was just, uh, it was, it was, um, it was sheer will. And it was also hiring someone, a woman named Paige, who worked in the store. And I hired her and said, because I'd done everything that, that we, that ever, the corporate team had said to do. They're great, but I did everything. And I was like, no, I'm going to listen to what is it like to be in the store? Because clearly we couldn't sell to support well, because we didn't, we didn't know how it worked. Like I, you know, I was like, I just, I don't know how to sell something in a store where I don't, I haven't fundamentally learned it yet. So I was like, teach me everything, you know. What is it like to work in the store? Why would someone want to sell the brand? What makes a client come over? 
And she just went through it over and over and over again. I listened and listened and listened. And I was like, okay, um, I did this fundamentally wrong. And then I also realized like we had to like, you know, just change, just change our strategy, change pricing. And that's kind of how like a lot of things changed after that. Now I knew that you became the highest selling skincare brand in Sephora, but I didn't realize that it happened in a matter of months. Uh, well, well, to be fair, hold on. That was in one store. <laughs> yeah, but there's still the, the biggest skincare yeah, store. Yeah. 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 And then, but then, you know, then we, we, they gave us more doors. They gave us like 50 and then a hundred. And, you know, it was, you know, it wasn't that we were number one, we would be like number 20. Then you get to mm-hmm. number 15, then number 10, then number eight, then number five, then number eight again, you know, and then it's like constantly like figuring out how to like, you know, keep climbing back up or climb, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's a constantly moving target. Well, I imagine part of that growth and part of that climb beyond the products being so good was your presence on social media. You were a very early adopter. I understand that you had very little in the way of a marketing budget, understandably so. So you turned to social media influencers. This was a very, very different time to where we're at now. So what was your strategy? Um, well, actually, we didn't have a small marketing budget. We had no marketing budget. So, this yeah, as about as small yeah. as it can get. Yeah, it's about as small. And, you know, like I remember, uh, you know, at one point it was like three or four of us sitting in a room and the girl that, her name is Sophie, um, and I worked with her for over 10 years, that she would do social media, but she also, you know, did, you know, purchase orders and she also would help with logistics. And she would also, you know, she's great. She became our demand planner. Like she, she was, you know, endlessly smart, but we were not, um, we didn't have product even really to send out to influencers and I don't even know. So there was, it was, it was a, it was a beautiful turning moment for us, but essentially what we had was because Barney's was considered such a cool store, people would come in and try the new products. And then if they liked it, they would clearly they'd post about it. And then we were all selling Sephora and a few other small retailers. And truly it wasn't us doing send outs because we didn't have, we we didn't have like, any of this stuff. We did have, um, we did have a, a wonderful PR partner and we started doing, um, we started trying to do some fashion week stuff. That was the one thing that we did spend some money on, um, some fashion week stuff, but it was truly people would, would just go in, buy it and talk about it. And then it, it, it was, it was a lot of it was organic and it was just, um, you know, it was just being lucky to be honest with you. There's a lot of luck, a lot of faith. You have mentioned in past interviews that green chemistry really is at mm-hmm. the core of the brand. I yeah. would love to hear more about this. What is green chemistry and what does it mean to you and why is it important to you? Sure. And I think that's one of those things that can be defined by different people in different ways. Sure. The way that I the way that I see it is that I'm a big believer that if you want to transform your skin, you need active ingredients. So I always think of it as a very science-based brand. Um even though some of the science might be applied to botanicals, like if you want to take like the curcuminoids that are in turmeric, right? Like that's still, but like it's, it's getting down to like, what is the, the active, you know, root source of how to transform your skin and whatever it is you're looking for to transform it. Um, but balancing it with botanicals, really using more of the botanical um, part, like maybe the extract or the aloe to really soothe the skin and really look at the whole 360 health of the skin. So you have the active transformation, but you aren't irritating the skin in the process. So it's kind of like, you know, powered by science, balanced by botanicals. 
um, is what I really see as this green chemistry, this kind of like green is in like earth centric, um, you know, philosophy, like how do we, and, and really the earth is what kind of inspires me when it comes to ingredients too. You know, what's the, yeah, what I see. While we are on the product side of things, yeah. a number of Sunday Riley products have reached legitimate cult status. Good Jeans, of course, being the hero, for lack of a yeah. better word. I have a few questions about this. <clears throat> Firstly, sure. for anyone listening who perhaps hasn't experienced Good Jeans for themselves, what is it and why has it become such an icon? Sure. Good Jeans is our global bestseller. So it's an all-in-one um, alpha-hydroxy acid treatment serum. So we have two versions. We have the lactic acid version and the glycolic acid version. I love them both, use them both. Um, but it basically it exfoliates the surface of the skin. So it really helps to dissolve the, the dead skin cells that are bound to the surface, which are just going to fall into your, into your pores, mixed with like sebum, mixed with bacteria, form congestion, bumps, breakouts, also lead to lack of radiance. I always equate it to like, you know, if you don't remove that, it's like, looking through a dirty window. You're not going to yeah. have that beautiful, like healthy glow that shine and that soft texture. So that's, that's all, those are all signs of youth. You know, I said, I said, you know, we, that we don't think about, um, but that's, it's our health and vitality is, let's say it like that. So it really does again, like whether you've got, you know, congested skin or you've got, you know, dry skin or you've got mature skin, it really is that kind of like all in one, it helps, you know, plump and look the fine lines particularly around the eye area. So it's just great. I use it. I've used it truly every single day. It's a real like instant gratification product. If you use that at nighttime, you will see results the next morning. I feel like that's what sucks people into the brand. It, 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 it is that instant gratification product. Absolutely. Because some things like retinoids, I love retinoids. I could write a poem to retinoids, but they can oh, take, you know. Eight, I'll be right there yeah, with you. Yeah. Eight to 12 weeks to really see real results, right? Like retinoids take time. Um, acid doesn't. So, I mean, yes, it takes time to see like longer term things, but you can see results in acid right away. The, the trick is, is that if it's not kind of a balanced formula, the, you know, it can strip the skin, it can do whatever. So that's what I think makes good genes so special. Also, that's got like the power of the acid to transform your skin, but it leaves your skin healthy, looking great and not compromising your moisture barrier or with like redness, irritation, which some acid formulas can do if they're not kind of put together in what I call the right way. On Good Genes, you reformulated in, I think, 2018. What led to that decision and what did you change? So Good Genes reformulated twice. Um, they Both were just to green it up. So when Good Genes mm -hmm. first launched, again, this is like 12 years ago, um, it launched with parabens. And then within like a short amount of time, I took the parabens out and put in a different preservative system. So let's say that was the first one, which is changing the preservative system. Um, the second time, maybe it was like 2018, right about there, um, that was really just about, uh, greening it up a little bit, I'll say. So it, it was neutralized. The, you have to neutralize the acid, otherwise it would burn your skin off. So we have yep. to do that. That's, that's legal. And, and you want us to, um, but it was neutralized with triethanolamine, which, so TEA, which is not the worst ingredient on the planet, but I just felt it wasn't the cleanest. It wasn't the healthiest ingredient at this point. I, I didn't feel, I was like, you know what? I think I can do better. And so it was like, okay, so how do we neutralize it? Um, in, a, in a in a cleaner way that's you know healthier for the body and then again you know cleaning up the preservative system even more new preservatives that come out in that time period and just making sure that there so it was really taking the TEA out and finding another way to to neutralize the product um, so that was the that was the whole thing behind it and I, I yeah I, I felt better about it another hero product is of course Luna which 
takes an approach to retinol that is so different to anything else that I've used or even seen. Again, for anyone else who may not be across it, what can you tell us about Luna? I, I love Luna. Again, that's one of those things that I've used like every every single day. So Luna is, it uses a retinoid ester. So it is, you know, think of it as like the sister of retinol. It's not a, it's not a retinol ester, it's a retinoid ester. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's incredibly um, transformative to the skin, but about 90% less irritation if you look at the clinical studies of that raw material. Um, and then it's an oil-soluble material. So my thought was, you know, first of all, I, I told you I could write a poem to, to retinoids. They're super transformative to the skin. They're, they're great for acne-prone skin. They're great for, you know, the, the treatment and prevention of lines and wrinkles. Um, they're great for, you know, the appearance of pore size, like all these things. They're wonderful for the skin. Um, people are afraid of them, and I get it. I totally get it. Um, you know, because you've seen, we've all seen the peeling, the flaking that can happen in really aggressive formulas, which, by the way, is not a bad thing. It's just that it's got downtime. So the whole concept of Luna was like, how do we do this gentle, let's say intro retinoid, which by the way, I, I, I double retinoid. So I use A plus, which is much stronger. And then I put Luna on directly afterwards. So like, but this Luna was this like intro gentle retinoid that you could actually also apply on top of another retinoid, really get it into the skin, but super soothing. So all that downtime is absolutely gone. So not only was it using a powerful retinoid, but it, but one was naturally gentler. But the formula itself was super gentle. It's balanced with, you know, German chamomile and, and all these things, blue tansy. So it, it just was super, super, it is super, super soothing to the skin. Um, and I think that was one of the first products where people could say like, hey, I tried a retinoid. I was scared. I saw transformation. You know, the, the appearance of my visible skin, you know, redness is, is diminished, my whatever. And, but they just, and it was pretty fast without the downtime. And then that just kind of took off. One of the things that I've found really amazing about the way that you run your business is that you've not been afraid to take products off the market as well as reformulate. I would love to hear more about this from you as the ability to just completely remove all ego from a decision like that is so rare. You know, the, the reality is, is you got to try, you got to always try. That's my theory is like, try, try, try. Um, and you also got to pivot. You got to you got to acknowledge when it's when it's not right, or when you can do better. And I think that if you if you don't do that, you just get stuck. It's like I'm not going to win the battle with the consumers of the world on whether the product was right or wrong if they're not buying it. If they're not buying it, they were right, right? <laughs> like ultimately, mm. you know, like that's like the the answer is in the sales. And sometimes it just needs to be marketed differently. But the reality is, is the answers in the sales. So I give everything a certain window to take off. And if for some reason people don't want it, then they're right. And I could have done better. And so I'm like, okay. So it's like, I would say like egos down, pencils down, let's start again. And I try and learn from it. Like, you know, where did I go wrong on this one? Was it, was it the texture? Was it the scent? Was it the packaging? Was it the name? Like, what did I, you know, did I not consider this? Okay. I didn't consider this. Let me do that again. Um, did I feel if I was very honest with myself that I have that kind of gut feeling that I could do better? Um, yeah, I did. Okay. Well, I'm not going to do that again. Next time I have that gut feeling, I'm going to hold lunch until I feel like it's right. So it's about, yeah, it's basically, you know, you only have two choices. You either, you know, you either, (laughs) you know, die, you know, trying to be right or you survive admitting that you were wrong and, and, and trying again. There's that intuition again. It's a common theme here. Yeah. I mean, it, it really, without it or without listening to it, I, I don't know, you know, 
what I'd be doing, but I wouldn't be doing this. Well, on that note, there was once a Sunday Riley makeup line. Three questions on this. What led to its creation? Why did you decide to discontinue it? Will it ever make a comeback? So what led to it was, you know, being in, you know, being in these retailers and seeing, you know, you, you kind of see the sales of the other departments, right? And you're like, hey, makeup's on fire. You know, like this seems like, you know, it seems pretty, pretty cool. And, you know, we were doing fashion week. So we were, we were, you know, working backstage. And I was like, if we had a makeup line, we could, you know, apply it to the models. We can, and, you know, I'm going to be upfront with you. This was one of the big mistakes that I made. And mm-hmm. I spent an incredible amount of money in coming up with the packaging or developing the prototypes, the molds, um, and making a huge makeup range. I mean, we had two types of foundations. I think we had 12 shades each. We had face like loose powder. We had pressed powder. We had almost like what, 20, 30 eyeshadows, 20, 30 lipsticks. We had lip glosses. We had six blushes. I mean, it was an epically huge, epically huge makeup line for a new, for anyone. And actually, um, that's how we, we got into Sephora. So I want to be clear. So it was the Sephora color makeup team that was the most interested in the brand. The skincare uh-huh. team wasn't super interested. Um, but I realized that, you know, we were selling it at Barney's and we were truly losing money. I mean, it was just for every you know dollar we'd make, we'd spend $2 trying to make it. And even though Sephora was interested and I was like, well, if we get into Sephora, you know, like how great could it be? The reality was, is I just, I knew that we couldn't produce the volumes that they needed. And I knew also that people just weren't buying it. Like they weren't. So even if we got into Sephora, they weren't going to buy it because with the makeup line, 90% of our sales was still skincare, but 90% of our expenses were was the makeup line. But this is the only thing that went right with that, which is that even though it was the wrong decision to make, spent a lot of money, lost a lot of money, it still would open the door to Sephora, though we didn't go forward with the makeup team. It did open the door for the, you know, the, the, you know, the, you know, skincare and we, you know, that was really good and helpful. So, um, but yeah, it, so yes, I would do it again with the learnings mm-hmm. as to why it wasn't successful the first time. You have sat at the helm of the Sunday Riley brand since its launch in 2009. What advice would you give to anyone who is listening now who might be considering starting their own business, not necessarily in beauty, but what advice would you give them? Um, know everything, meaning like learn everything, learn everything you can about it, know how to do, and you can't know everything. I mean, no one's a God, but, but you can do every job at different points. You know, you can, you know, you, you, you can, and you know, when it comes to, you, you gotta be obsessed with it. You gotta be all in, you gotta live and breathe it. You can't give up because I promise you it's super hard. Like it's just super hard, but we can do hard things. Like, you know, like it, it that's okay. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's okay. Um, and then also the thing that I learned along the way is when you when you do have the chance to hire people, hire people for personality, not for resumes. That was another thing for, that I learned, which is like, you know, what is their mindset? Did you know? Do they do they want to build? Are they builders? You know, you know, not just someone might have the best resume on the planet, but if they're not a builder, they don't want to be there. Trust me, from day one, they want to be there on day one thousand or or day you know five thousand, which is fine too. But make sure you hire people who are love an extreme startup environment, thrive off of it, you know, versus someone who really will hate it within a short amount of time. That's very sound advice. Over the last five or so years, what have been some of the biggest changes that you've seen within the beauty industry? Um, 
I would say there was like a lot of, you know, pop-up of independent brands, you know, mm-hmm. everywhere. And then they suddenly kind of all got acquired in the last year or something. <laughs> so that, that's been kind of an interesting thing. It was, it was, you know, you were competing in people and then they're, you know, then they were acquired by the big, you know, what five brands or something. Um, but that, and I would say also skincare, maybe, maybe it's been a little more than five years. I have to think about when it changed, but mm-hmm. skincare ha- went from, kind of like being what you do in the morning and what you do in the evening and almost like kind of brushing your teeth. It was a routine thing. It went from that to being like, no, I deserve this, this moment. Like I deserve to take care of myself. And it, it went from just being like a, almost like a, a routine that you had to do to being like a, like a, a ritual of self-care. And that, that really did, you know, evolve the way people. And, and I, I love that because when it comes to making skincare, like I'm so obsessed with like the texture, the scent, the the efficacy, like the experience, what does it feel like to pump the bottle? What does it feel like to reach into the jar? So like, I love that it's being seen as being, uh, as being this, you know, self-care ritual. And what changes do you think we can expect to see over the next couple of years within the beauty industry? You know, I don't have a crystal ball in this one. I didn't see COVID coming. So I, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I don't know, but I do know this. I think, I think things always change. Like we're always in a system of flux. That's the nature of the universe, right? Things are always going to change and you've got to be responsive to it. And when you deny there's change, you just kind of get swept away. So whatever it is, I'll try and be as responsive to it as I can and try and listen and watch it. And I don't know what it will be. Um, I also try not to, you know, I, when I make products, I make products based on how I feel like what should come next versus maybe what's logical. So sometimes that's based on what I hear people talking about. Um, so I just try to be responsive to it. Um, but let, let's watch this space. My final question, what is next for Sunday Riley? Ooh, I don't know. You tell me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But but something, you know, something. There's a lot of things that I'm really interested in um, beyond skincare. And um, I definitely want to to see about expanding into into other things as well. There's just, there's a lot of things that I'm really kind of obsessed with right now. So I, I'm, I'm always obsessed with something, but, like, <laughs> but there, there are a few things that I, that I am interested in. Um, whether it's like, you know, I just bought this farm in Italy. I'm kind of obsessed with that. Wow. That's been really interesting. I'm obsessed with the, the production of like wine and oil. I'm obsessed with like um, Tuscan plants right now. I've been inspired to kind of like create a body line based on some of the stuff that I've seen there. Um, I'm obsessed with, with supplements. I've been working on like, just like my own, making my own thing. So like, there's just like, quite a few things I'm, I'm really um, intrigued by and we'll see what takes off. That was Sunday Riley, CEO and founder of Sunday Riley, which you can find on Instagram at Sunday Riley. To read this interview, you can visit glowjournal.com And for more beauty news, you can find me on Instagram at jemkwatts or at glow.journal. If you liked this episode, please do not forget to subscribe, rate, review and share so other beauty and business lovers can find us. I'm Gemma Watts. You've been listening to the Glow Journal podcast and thank you for joining me.